0: Hello everybody, I'm Dr. Trevin Hatch. Welcome to the Strangers in Jerusalem podcast and YouTube channel where we explore the Gospels and the Jesus traditions within their Jewish contexts. You can find the podcast version of this material at strangersinjerusalem.podbean.com. You can also check out my book, A Stranger in Jerusalem, Seeing Jesus as a Jew. You'll get many insights. Uh, details in that book that you don't get in these videos. As always, please click the subscribe button so that you get a notification when these new videos come out. And please tell me in the comments something new that you learned in this video. In this episode, we will examine the comparisons between Jesus and Moses. We will look at the Hebrew Bible and also in Jewish lore and rabbinic literature to show how early Jews compared their favorite or their prominent holy man to Moses. And you notice that the gospel writers did the same thing with Jesus. And they don't think I know a buttload of crap about the gospel, but I do, okay? So follow me, let's go to Jerusalem. What do the Jesus Moses' parallels tell us about how the gospel writers viewed Jesus? Also, how might first and second century Jews who were hearing these tra- Jesus traditions or even reading them, if they had, if they could read and had access to them, how would they have engaged these texts or understood these Jesus stories? Moses features prominently in the gospels. You notice that he is in the Transfiguration, he's mentioned many times, in fact, 57 times. Moses is mentioned in the Gospels and Acts. The prominence of Moses in the Gospels extends far past the explicit references. There's there's a lot of places where Moses is embedded into the Gospels text without explicit references in the form of typologies and allusions. Moses is without question the most prominent or revered biblical figure for early Jews. Numerous texts engage the Moses stories and offer various interpretations. This is no surprise since Moses was credited for freeing the ancestors of the Jewish people from bondage and for giving them their law. Also, by the first century CE, the following prophecy in Deuteronomy was ringing loudly in the ears of Jews. This quote, The Lord our God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses is talking, like me, from among your own people. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 18. When the Jewish freedom fighters took the temple back from the Greeks, in 164 BCE and subsequently established an independent Jewish state, they anticipated the coming of a prophet, probably referring to Deuteronomy 1815. Also, the Dead Sea sect at Qumran awaited the coming of a prophet like Moses. Moses was such a revered figure for early Jews that they spoke of him in highly uh, mythical but also exalted terms. For example, 1st century Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria maintained that Moses was the greatest figure in the history of humankind, that in accordance with divine providence, he was both a king and a lawgiver, a high priest and a prophet, and because in each office he displayed the most eminent wisdom and virtue. Josephus similarly described Moses as one who, quote, surpassed in understanding all men everywhere and as the greatest prophet who ever lived, insomuch that in all his utterances, one seemed to hear the speech of God himself. A second century BCE Jewish dramatist from Alexandria, this guy's name is Ezekiel the Tragedian, he wrote the following about Moses. I, Moses, had a vision of a great throne on top of Mount Sinai, and it reached to the folds of heaven. A noble man was sitting on it, with a crown and a large scepter in his left hand. He beckoned to me with his right hand, so I approached and stood before the throne. He gave me the scepter and instructed me to sit on the great throne. Then he gave me a royal crown and got up from the throne. I beheld the whole earth all around and saw beneath the earth and above the heavens. The multitude of stars fell before my knees and I counted them all. Jews in antiquity compared several prophet figures to Moses. Dale Allison, scholar at Princeton Theological Seminary identified at least nine such individuals in the Hebrew Bible who were compared to Moses. This is Joshua, Gideon, Samuel, David, Elijah, Josiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Ezra. Later, the rabbis compared Moses to their three most prominent sages, Hillel the Elder, Yochanan ben Zakkai, and Rabbi Akiva. For instance, according to Deuteronomy 34.7, Moses lived 120 years. Likewise, according to the rabbis, each of these three figures lived 120 years, comprising three periods of 40. Note that two of them were contemporaries of Jesus. A rabbinic text based on Deuteronomy, the te- this text is called Sifre Deuteronomy, provides the following explanation. Moses was one of the four who died at the age of 120. Moses, Hillel the Elder, Yohanan ben Zakkai, and Rabbi Kiva. Moses was in Egypt for 40 years, in Midian for 40 years, and led Israel for 40 years. Hillel the Elder went up from Babylonia to the land of Israel at the age of 40, attended upon the sages for 40 years, and led Israel for 40 years. Yohanan ben Zakkai was in business for 40 years, attended upon the sages for 40 years, and led Israel for 40 years. Rabbi Akiva was a shepherd for 40 years, learned Torah for 40 years, and led Israel for 40 years. A few other rabbinic texts discuss Hillel the Elder in relation to Moses. For example, in the Babylonian Talmud, a group of rabbis met at a home in Jericho. While in their meeting, a voice from heaven, this is the bat kol that I talked about in the baptism videos, the bat kol, the voice of God, declared in that meeting that one of them was worthy to have the presence of God rest upon him as it did on Moses. And then the text says, at that point, all the sages turned to Hillel the elders and set their eyes upon him. That's in the Babylonian Talmud. Another rabbinic passage explains that Hillel had 80 students, two sets of 40 the best of whom were, quote, worthy to have the divine spirit resting upon them as it did upon Moses our master, unquote. That's also in the Babylonian Talmud. The authors of the New Testament, a largely Jewish corpus of texts, show a similar affinity for Moses, particularly in relation to Jesus. They, too, speak about a prophet who is to come like Moses. Early in the Gospel of John, Philip told Nathanael that he had found that person, referring to Jesus, quote, about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. This is John 1.45. Later in John, the crowd which Jesus miraculously fed said, quote, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, unquote. You can see John 6:14 and cross-reference that with John 7.40 and Acts 3:22. In the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus entered the east gate of the temple complex, and people asked, Who is this? The crowd with Jesus said, quote, this is the prophet, unquote. They're probably referring to the prophet who is to come. That's Matthew 21, 10, and 11. So let me give you some examples. The Gospel of John claims that John the Baptist did not know Jesus prior to his baptism. John 1, 31 through 33. The author of Luke, however, claims that John and Jesus were relatives and that their mothers had a close relationship. This is in Luke 1:36. The author of Luke wanted to connect John and Jesus by familial relationship, whereas the author of John wanted to disassociate them. Perhaps members of the community of Jesus believers in the late first century who favored the Gospel of John were embarrassed that their Messiah and God sought immersion from John the Baptist. The author of John, therefore, removed any association between Jesus and John the Baptist prior to Jesus' baptism. Note that... John's Gospel does not even mention Jesus' baptism. It may be that the author of Luke overstated the relationship between John and Jesus in order to connect Jesus with Moses. So how so? Jesus' mother Mary shares her name with Moses' sister, Exodus 15-21 20 and also Exodus 26-59. And John's mother Elizabeth shares her name with Moses' sister-in-law, Aaron's wife. Exodus 6.23. So what this means is just as the offspring of Mary and Elizabeth of the Hebrew Bible were first cousins, so too were the offspring of Mary and Elizabeth of the New Testament. Notice that Luke is the only gospel that mentions John's mother, Elizabeth, who, according to the author of Luke, is a descendant of Aaron. You can see that in Luke 1.5. The author of Luke goes out of his way to make sure his readers know that that Elizabeth has a connection to the lineage of Aaron, that she's from that lineage. Note also that these are the only two women named Elizabeth in the entire Hebrew Bible and New Testament. In other words, there seems to be a concerted effort on the part of Luke, the author of Luke, to force the connection between Jesus and Moses, in this case, when none of the other gospels do so with this particular story. As a second Moses, or Moses' successor, Jesus is named after Moses' original successor, Joshua. If you remember from the baptism video, we talked about how the Jordan River is parted for Joshua at the beginning of his ministry. That's in Joshua chapter three. And the heavens are parted while another Joshua stands in the Jordan River at the beginning of his ministry. We're talking about Jesus there. Explicit connection between Joshua and Moses is made in the book of Joshua. Here's Joshua 3.7. This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so that they may know that I will be with you as I was with Moses. The authors of the gospel seem to be making the same Moses connection with their own Joshua. God speaks to Joshua and exalts him this day at the Jordan River, see Joshua 3:7. and God also speaks to another Joshua and exalts him today, as it says in the text, today, this day at the Jordan River quote. You are my son, today I have begotten you." Unquote. That's Mark 1, 11. So it's no wonder that the angel Gabriel, according to the authors of the Gospels, commands Joseph and Mary to name their son Joshua. See Matthew 1, 20, uh, Matthew 1, 21 and Luke 1, 31. The Hebrew Bible does not mention similar prophecies of Moses' birth and mission. However, first century Jewish tradition does contain such elements. For starters, Jesus' father Joshua and Moses' father Amram are counterparts. The author of Matthew calls Joseph a just man, Matthew 1.19. And early Jewish tradition labels Amram one of the seven just men in the Hebrew Bible who helped bring the presence of God back to Israel. According to Josephus, Moses' father Amram had a dream wherein God stood over him and gave him a dream in which he learns that his wife will bear a son, and the, and Amram's son will save the Jewish people. Amram awakes from his dream and immediately tells his wife, Yocheved, about the dream. As with Luke's gospel, a later rabbinic tradition contains the presence of the angel Gabriel. He protects Moses from Pharaoh's maidservant who wants him dead. Shortly after, Pharaoh's daughter rescues him from the Nile. This is in the Babylonian Talmud. In several early Jewish texts, Mary becomes a prominent figure, even more so than Moses' actual mother. Moses' sister, Miriam, in Hebrew, prophesies that her mother will bear a son who will deliver the Jewish people. This is also in the Babylonian Talmud. This tradition may not date to the first century, but the central theme of a deliverer who was prophesied to come save the Jewish people fits within an early Jewish context. In Matthew, the wise men, or magi in Greek, referring to magicians or astrologers, notify Herod of Jesus' birth. Herod becomes paranoid and orders the murder of all children two years of age or under. This is a mirror of the Moses story in Exodus. Pharaoh, too, becomes paranoid, not because of Moses' birth, but because of an increased strength and population of the Hebrews. He fears a revolt and therefore commands the drowning of all infant males in the Nile, Exodus 1.22. A few early Jewish traditions, however, are strikingly similar to Jesus' birth story. In Josephus' writings, it was not the size and strength of the Hebrew people or population that worried Pharaoh, but it was Moses' birth. One of Pharaoh's foretellers prophesied that a child would be born among them, the Hebrews, and would subsequently deliver them. This leads to the infant murder decree. Later rabbinic traditions are even closer to Jesus' birth narrative. Like the Gospel of Matthew, a few rabbinic texts posit that Pharaoh's astrologers, inform him of Moses' imminent birth, calling him a savior of the Jewish people. And like Herod, Moses becomes paranoid and orders the killing of all Hebrew male babies. This is the Babylonian Talmud. In an ancient Jewish commentary on Exodus, Pharaoh's magicians are concerned that the Hebrew baby would replace him as king. As Jesus' birth narrative in Matthew progresses, the Moses parallels continue. We see this always in the, all throughout the Gospels. Herod tries to kill Jesus, so his parents take him to Egypt, Matthew 2, 13 and 14. Pharaoh tries to kill Moses, so he flees from Egypt, Exodus 2, 15. After Herod dies, an angel instructs Joseph, quote, go to the land of Israel, for those who are seeking the child's life are dead, unquote. That's Matthew 2, 19 and 20. Likewise, after Pharaoh dies, God instructs Moses, quote, go back to Egypt, for all those who are seeking your life are dead, unquote. It's the same language. You can see that in Exodus 4:19. In the wilderness, Israel is tested, and the Greek word is parazo. They are tested with bread to see whether they will follow my instruction, as it says in Exodus 16:4. The tempter, or one who tempts, or the one who tests, is the Greek parazon. It's the same word as when Israel was tested. The one, the tempter, confronts Jesus in the wilderness and offers him bread. It's the same, same story, same it's a direct parallel. That's in Matthew 4:3. 3. After, after that, Moses ascends a mountain to receive the law for Israel, and Jesus ascends a mountain and expounds on the law for Israel. Moses appoints 12 to be heads of the division of Israel. These 12 represent the 12 tribes. Similarly, after his wilderness preparation, Jesus calls 12 apostles who are chosen to lead, quote, the house of Israel, unquote. That's Matthew 10, 1 through 6. A few additional details on the 40-day wilderness retreat further illustrate the Moses-Jesus connection. Only in Matthew does Jesus fast for 40 days and 40 nights. That's Matthew 4, 2. In Mark and Luke, he fasts for 40 days. That's Luke 4, 2 and Mark 1 through 13. This is key because while while the term 40 days appears all throughout scripture, the the phrase 40 days and 40 nights does not. It's directly related to two individuals, Moses and Elijah, the former being being typological of the latter. The author of Matthew knew about the text of Mark and used it while composing his own text. And the fact that the author of Matthew added and 40 nights to the tradition in Mark suggests that he was specifically pointing his readers to Moses. We have already mentioned that both the Israelites and Jesus were tempted in the wilderness with bread. Most noteworthy, however, are the words of Moses and Jesus when, when they were tempted. When Jesus is tempted to command these stones to become loaves of bread, his response is one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Unquote. That's Matthew 4 4. These are the precise words of Moses to his people. Quote, He humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna, in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Unquote. That's Deuteronomy 8 2 3. As a type of Moses, Jesus miraculously feeds 4,000 people and 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread. This is a direct parallel of the Israelites in the wilderness they ate and were filled it says in Matthew 14:20 just as Israel under Moses is told quote you shall eat your fill unquote That's Deuteronomy 8:10 the addition in Matthew that Jesus on two separate occasions provides bread to 4 and 5000 men besides women and children it says in Matthew 14:21 seems to be a direct parallel to Moses bringing thousands of men besides women and children out of Egypt with their Quote, baked unleavened cakes of dough, unquote. That's Exodus 12 to 37. Mark's detail that Jesus organizes the crowd into groups of hundreds and of fifties reflects Moses' organization of Israel in the wilderness into groups of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. That's Exodus 18:21, Deuteronomy 1:15, and also Mark 6:40. Jesus' wilderness experience in the presence of Satan also resembles Moses' experience in Jewish lore. The Hebrew Bible does not contain a similar situation with Moses encountering Satan, but early Jewish tradition does. The rabbis perpetuated tradition that when Moses descended from Sinai, he encountered Satan. The altercation ends when Moses commands Satan, "...away, wicked one, from here. You must not speak thus." "'Go, flee before me. I will not surrender my soul to you.'" Readers of the New Testament will recognize the similarity with the Satan Jesus encounters in the wilderness, which culminates in Jesus saying, "'Away with you, Satan, for it is written, "'Worship the Lord your God and serve only him.'" That's Matthew 4.10. It is difficult to know if these Moses-Satan traditions date to the first century. However, the fact that similar parallel traditions developed among Jews with Moses and among Christians with Jesus is not surprising. Jesus' transfiguration also mirrors Moses' encounter with God on Sinai. When Moses goes up to the mountain, Exodus 24, 12, three specifically named associates accompany him. You have Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Similarly, three associates accompany Jesus to a high mountain. This is Peter, James, and John. See Matthew chapter 17 and Mark chapter nine. A cloud covers Moses when he's on Sinai from which the voice of God calls out, Exodus 24 and Exodus chapter 34. A cloud also descends and covers Jesus, from which the voice of God proclaims Jesus as his son. In both stories, the faces of Moses and Jesus shine like the sun, which incites fear in their associates, in both stories, Exodus 34 and Matthew 17. Not only does this Jesus tradition mirror the Moses story, but Moses appears to Jesus and speaks to him. When Peter sees this, he offers to make Jesus a tabernacle, perhaps so that he might stay longer and dwell with Moses for seven days, it says. as Matthew 17, 4 and Mark 9, 5. So why seven days? Because God commanded the Israelites to dwell in tabernacles once per year for seven days to commemorate the wilderness wandering. It's Deuteronomy chapter 16, Leviticus chapter 23, and Nehemiah chapter 8. Note that the cloud covers Moses for six days, And, quote, on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the cloud, unquote. That's Exodus 24, 16. These Moses-Jesus parallels are not just interesting. They tell us something. The, The parallel data allow us to catch glimpses into the minds of the authors of the Gospels. What sources and traditions did they utilize while writing their narratives? What were their motives? What were their beliefs about Jesus? What was the nature of their Gospels? How did the Jesus traditions fit within the context of Judaism in the first centuries BCE and CE? Obviously, this episode does not sufficiently answer these questions. However, it does get us thinking along these lines. The Gospels are not a matter-of-fact retelling of Jesus' life. They appear to be politically and theologically motivated constructions of of a body of traditions about Jesus. Jews in antiquity who heard or read these traditions in the first few centuries after Jesus's death, they would have recognized the themes relevant to Moses as well as Jewish elements in the story. That's all for this video. Thank you everybody for watching. Please again click subscribe and click the little bell, the notification button so you are notified of this of, of new episodes. Please leave a comment of something new that you learned in this episode. Also check out my book, A Stranger in Jerusalem Seeing Jesus as a Jew. You'll get many more details in there that are not in these episodes. That- was awesome!